0: Well, good morning again. Good morning. See, it always takes me twice. Casey gets it on the first try, but I never do. Good morning. good morning. Good morning. All right. Now, like I said last week, apparently, you can only do this in the middle of nowhere. So I'm going to try it again. God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's open with a word of prayer. O true, eternal, and everlasting Lord, we have no reason to be able to approach you other than the death of your son. I pray God that as we come to your word today, we would understand what's true, what we need to do, and what, and most importantly, how glorious and wonderful you are. In Jesus' name, amen. In, uh, in July of 1505, there was, a, there was a guy who entered what we would call the monkery, the life of a monastic monk in the, the country of Germany. He had a he made an oath to serve the Lord in the middle of a thunderstorm. He was traveling from one place to another and a thunderstorm struck and for whatever reason he was terrified and uh, he cried out for help to the only mediator he knew who was a patron saint of minors. That's M-I-N-E-R-S. So he cried out, Saint Anne, save me and I will serve the Lord. And unlike most people who swear to God, he actually followed through. In 1507, this man, who is named Martin Luther, so he entered the monkery in 1505. In 1507, he was leading his first mass. He had previously graduated with both a bachelor's and a master's degree, but it still took him time to master Latin and be able to lead mass. And he entered another thunderstorm, but this time it's a metaphorical thunderstorm in his heart. He got so far in the opening service, as the opening prayer, saying in Latin, we offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And he stopped. In his own words, he said this, at these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of an even earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the, to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. How often do we pause in our prayers to wonder who we're approaching? Luther continued being an exceptional monk. He was one of the few monks who actually paid penance. He actually, uh, when, he, when he sensed sin in his heart, he would flagellate himself. He would uh, go and, and fast. He would, uh, he would avoid eating. And as he once said, anybody that knew him during his time of being a monk would, would attest that if anybody ever made it to heaven on monkery, Martin Luther would have done it. In 1510, Martin Luther took a pilgrimage to Rome, which was kind of like that wonderful thing that every monk and every priest wanted to do. And instead of celebrating when he approached this beautiful city, he was appalled by the rampant sin of the priests in Rome. And what frustrated him most was this thing called the sales of indulgences. Now, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't so much practice this today, but what they would do is they would, in order to fund the, the building of St. Peter's Basilica and, and, and maintain the streets of Rome, they would actually pay, pay, have, have Roman Catholics across the world pay to atone for sin. They would, they would collect money and they would say okay we'll go your your great grandfather who was a terrible person he's released from purgatory and one guy john tetzel who was basically the best telemarketer of the 1500s came up with this this wonderful saying he said a coin in the coffer springs or I, i'm sorry i said that wrong a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs the money that was being collected and sent back to Rome was actually being used to pay for uh, prostitutes, for the priests, for, for the, uh, the, 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 the sins that Martin Luther was simply appalled at. So he returned back to his home country of Germany and he became a college professor. Uh, in 1517 so seven years later in 1517 he took up a job well 1516 1517 he took up a job in this 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 new upstart of a university called Wittenborg and in Wittenberg they had one church it was a castle church which means that it was it, the, the 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 college was built into this castle and there was a church building in the castle so the university and the, the church were the same building and in 1517 on October 31st he posted what are called his 95 theses most of which if you were to go online and read them free today most of which argue about the selling of indulgences of how it's not biblical it's not scriptural and here uh, Martin Luther created a thunderstorm and it, it sparked the Reformation. And it, 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 again, it was on October 31st, so the evening before All Saints Day, when, when, the, when the people of the village would come and gather for church, they would go past and they would hopefully see these 95 theses. Now historians remind us that chances are everybody just walked right by it, except the students. The students were the ones who would stop and read the 95 theses of their of, of their professor Dr. Martin. The students are the ones that took those 95 theses, took them to the Gutenberg printing press, and had them fabricated and sent across Germany. Martin Luther probably did not nail like all those pictures, right? You see Martin Luther with the partially bald head and he's standing there holding a hammer and his giant like tome of the 95 theses on the wall, right? Probably not. He actually probably just gave gave the the thing to to the local custodian who would have just tacked it on with some glue or tar. But again, he started a thunderstorm. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, it's because today's October 31st. Uh, and, and it was on October 31st in 1517 that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses. By the way, he was only 33 at the time. Uh, on, uh, on that evening, or uh, on the next day, German families would, would gather. They would go to mass. They would wake up and they would hear a service that they couldn't even understand. Because they spoke German. And masses were always conducted in Latin. Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses in the hope that he would reform the Catholic Church. He wanted wanted to return the Roman Catholic Church uh, to, to, uh, to being an organization that was solidly and firmly convicted and convinced by the word of God. The rest of Luther's days were filled with trouble and persecution for his bold stance that scripture, not tradition, was sufficient for a Christian's practice. You know, he honestly could have continued an easy life. He, he could have just continued as a college professor because as a college professor and a monk, he made a good wage. He could have just kept teaching what he didn't believe, which is apparently what a lot of college professors did. Because when, when the Reformation started, a lot of the college professors who had just received Erasmus' uh, New Testament in Greek A lot of the college professors pointed out that they hadn't believed these traditions for a long time. So he could have just continued the easy life. He was was very, uh, very relatable to the students and the students liked him. He could have just kept doing what he was doing. But instead he had this conviction, this conviction that God had called him to do something. And it was that God had called Luther to deny himself and his own pleasure and take up his cross of reformation. So, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24. We're picking off, or picking off, we're picking up where we left off uh, last week. Um, So let's go ahead and read. So 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Now, a little background I know we just read it, but try and imagine those words being said. Uh, in, in our minds, we probably think, especially since we just read last week of Jesus talking to his apostles that, or his disciples, that this is only to the group of the disciples. But if we were to open to the parallel passages in Mark 8, 34 to 9, 1 or Luke 9, 23 to 27, we'd read that the crowds are actually gathered around him at this time. But Matthew makes clear that really Jesus is trying to get this through to the disciples here. So also, we have to remember that Jesus is continuing his rebuke to Peter. Do you remember what Peter's problem was last week? He was trying to be a hindrance. He was trying to get in the way. He told Jesus that, no, you don't need to die. He had his, he had his, he, Peter thought about what he wanted and how he wanted Jesus to usher in this earthly kingdom that he had been taught of. And he knew all, he knew how this was going to go. If the Messiah came, he was going to, he was going to secure peace for Jerusalem, cast out Rome. It was a politicized gospel, actually. And Peter wanted to stand in the way of it. Peter, Peter said, this shall never be, you shall never die. And then Jesus tells him again, just going back, get behind me, Satan, you're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this section that we just read a moment ago is the continuing of that rebuke. In fact, we could even think about it in our head. How do you set your mind on the things of God and not on the things of man? So Jesus is trying to solve the riddle for us. So... Part one, or point one, that I want you guys to realize is we, you have to deny yourself. Now, that phrase, deny yourself, doesn't exist in the other parallel accounts. Uh, Matthew is trying to make, make a point of, of what Jesus is saying. Chances are Jesus really did say this, but, but, the, but the point is that denying yourself, the way that you deny yourself is you take up your, your own means of death. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, we, most of us in this room have heard or read the account of Jesus and his crucifixion. And we know that after he was whipped and flogged and beaten and bruised and he had the crown of thorns put on his head, he had to carry his own cross to his execution point. Jesus says this before his crucifixion, knowing exactly where he's going, knowing exactly the manner of death that he's going to going to take, knowing everything about about what's going to occur. And he's telling his disciples, you got to do this, too, but not in the same way. Jesus is when, when Jesus carried his own cross, he was actually so beaten that he wasn't able to to take the cross himself, and so a, a gentleman named Simon had to come and help him. The soldiers forced this other man to come and bear a brunt of the cross with Jesus. And in all Roman crucifixions, whenever they, ha- whenever they did this, think about it, you are carrying the, in, the exact thing that's going to kill you. This is what you're going to die on. It's like being forced to carry your tombstone to your own grave and put it in the ground. Or or a, a, a prisoner carrying the electric chair. It seems cruel, doesn't it? And yet here Jesus tells us very clearly, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, if you think about it, You got to be really willing to follow Jesus if you're going to take up what's going to kill you. If you are really, really, really wanting to follow Jesus, if you have that deep seated desire to follow Jesus, you will take up that which will kill you. And in some countries, that's simply just having faith in Christ. In other countries, it's, it's, it's standing for what is biblical. In Martin Luther's case, it was literally standing for the Bible. It's standing up for who God is and having this Godward vision, this focus, this intentionality of doing everything, everything for God. That is what it means to want to follow Jesus. Because the reality is that nobody can fake their way into the kingdom of God. Fake it till you make it is a a false phrase. It doesn't work in any circumstance and it works even less with God. You have to want to follow Christ. And if you don't want to follow Christ and do what he commands, then you're gonna end up deceiving yourself and deceiving others. Now deny ourselves right so that so so when Jesus says that let him deny himself what does that really mean well it means that we focus on what God wants not on our own wants I had a I had a quote on my board in there for months and and it said church is not about our preferences a church is about god 's preferences for us and I had that there to remind me that there's certain things that that You know, even if I want changed, you know, honestly, it all has to be about Jesus. It has to be about a focus on Jesus. If I'm doing something out of my own ambition, then guess what? It's going to fail. If you are doing something out of your own ambition, then guess what? It's going to fail. But it doesn't mean it's not going to be disastrous along the way. So God tells us to deny ourselves. Jesus tells us to deny ourselves. You might want many things, but guess what? We're called to sacrifice those desires and thoughts in light of God's desires and thoughts. And the rationale, the ground for that, for that proof is uh, probably best summarized by God in Isaiah 55, 9. Uh, he says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You will never be able to aspire to the level of God's Authority in thinking or acting. So therefore, we need to constantly get out of our own thoughts and get out of our own practices and look at what God says and do what God says to do. But in reality, we don't do that. We, we make things about us. You ever do that? You ever, you ever look, at, look at something and make it about you even though you're completely not involved in it? I'm not going to use an example from here, but, <laughs> but it's going to sound like it. I was, I was a part of a church in Beaverton, and I mention it all the time, but I remember, I remember we got different trash bags. Not even kidding. We had to get different trash bags. The trash bags that were in the store that we were buying were not there, and so we got trash bags that were the wrong size. They were just a little too big, and they hung over the trash can. And I, I, I was loading one in one morning just to, just to replace, because something got spilled in the trash bag, and it smelled bad, and it was just not right. So I took the trash bag out, and this, this, this well-meaning person looks, looks at the trash bag and goes, you know, those trash bags are the wrong size. Really doesn't look that nice. And it's like, who cares? Go get another trash bag. If, if it doesn't fit, then just, just do it. And if I remember correctly, it was one of those like plastic baggies that I had taken from the store. I was just putting it in there so there would be something in the bottom of the trash can. But we like to take things and make them about ourselves when they have nothing to do with us. Why do we do that? Short answer, Pride. God hates when we, when we make something our own that is not our own. And God hates it when we have our pride get in the way. Proverbs six sixteen to 19, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty or pride, prideful, haughty eyes, a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. That's what the Lord hates. So in denying yourself, deny yourself those things. Now, going back to the, the carrying of the cross, right? The, the, there's this... I, I can't remember the word off the top of my head, unfortunately. But there's this, this, this thing in Christianity that doesn't make sense. It, it's, it's a bit of a paradox, if you will. And Jesus says it. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Wait, what? Huh? Whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There, that paradox... Could be summarized in this A Christian dies so that the Christian might live. A Christian has to die to something, to sin, to him or herself, in order so that he he or she might find life in Jesus Christ. Paul picks up on this motif in Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Have you ever seen a living sacrifice? No, because when you sacrifice something, it's dead. In all world religions, every single one, especially Judaism, if the bull was going to take the sins of the people, the bull had to die. They slit its throat, they let it bleed out after somebody grasped the horns and the sins went into the to the animal, or at least was supposed. There's no such thing as a living sacrifice. And Paul presents us with a paradox. That, that we have to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Denying yourself means dying to yourself so that you might live in Christ. Caring about our own selves is a sure fire path to destruction. If we put ourselves above God, we will be destroyed. But facing the destruction of our sinful desires to the glory of God is a surefire path to life. That's what it means. That's what Jesus means when he says, uh, whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it. So the person that wants to, wants to keep themselves alive and do what they're doing and, and, and their preferences are all that matter. And, and there's no sense of any, any, any level of submission to God, but it's just, this is, this is what I do. And this is what I like. And therefore I will not stop. The person that wants to preserve their life there will lose their lives, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So for whoever sacrifices their life so that they might glorify God, there they will find life. Therefore, Christians must carry their cross to the moment uh, until the moment that they lose their lives. You've got to keep repenting. Keep repenting. Guess what? You are not sinless. You will never be sinless as long as you have a sinful body. When you die, the sinful body is gone. And then you're disembodied, which is going to be really weird. And then you're resurrected. And when you're resurrected, you have a perfect body. And then you can be whole again, and you don't have to live in sin. And it's going to be incredible. But newsflash, you're not there. (laughs) I don't know if you've noticed. You're not there. You are going to battle sin until the day you die. You're going to have to continue denying yourself, taking up your cross, carrying on your back the thing that will get you killed, the thing that will continue mortifying or murdering your flesh. Why do Christians do that? What's so important about a repenting of sin? Why can't Christians just give in to sin? Ultimately, it's because we know that one day we have to make uh, a reckoning with our sinfulness, where where we owe God a payment for what we've done. Now, Jesus says that very clearly in verses 27 to, to, well, basically just 26 and 27. Uh, Jesus went on again, for what will it profit a man uh, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Nothing. Let me answer that question for you. Nothing. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Nothing. For the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Let me me read that again. I'm going to read that slowly. I want you to think about it. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You should not look forward to that. None of us should. If we get what we deserve, then we do not end up okay. I, 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 I try to teach this lesson to my kids Where, where, where I say over and over again, if you don't want discipline, then don't be naughty. Makes sense. And you will only get discipline when you're naughty. Doesn't mean I'm perfect, but my kids, they're learning bit by bit that they have a, they, they have to make a reckoning for their own actions. That is ultimately a gospel principle. We have to make a reckoning for our own actions. One day, Jesus is going to come back. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to, the, going to take, the, take the wolves and the goats and put them on one side destined for destruction. And he's going to take, take the, the, the sheep, those that have followed him and have served him and, and continued sacrificing and self-denying. He's going to put them on the other side for salvation. If you want to read about that, it's in Matthew 16. But Jesus is going to come back in judgment. And those of us who are here on earth might look at somebody who's wealthy, well off, maybe really healthy. And we might think, gosh, man, he must really have God's blessing or she must really be be close to the Lord. But that's just not the way it works. Ultimately, let me ask you, do you, do you, uh, do you place your worth or worthiness in, in, in your things or in the gratification of your fleshly desires? Because if you do, you are forfeiting your soul. You're giving up. And the thing is that the, the more somebody gives into sin, the more they grow numb to sin. Have you ever noticed that? Like it's a slippery slope. When somebody, when somebody says, this sin is okay, God says that that this is wrong, but I disagree, then you watch them careen down from then on. Nowadays, that would be something like homosexuality, where 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 somebody would say, Well, you know what? God gave me this, these desires, and so therefore they have to be good. Meanwhile, the repentant kleptomaniac down the road who is also trying to resist the urge to steal things is disagreeing. But that's another story for another time. But, but once somebody accepts that one thing, gosh, you just watch them go down the doctrinal downhill. You watch them give in to thing after thing after thing. And eventually they walk away from the Lord. They become what we now call an exvangelical, somebody who's exited the gospel. Which is exactly what that means. The more somebody argues with God, the more somebody moves away from God. And the more somebody sins, the more they grow numb to their own sin. But when Christ returns, like I said, Matthew 25, I said 16 earlier, that was my bad. This is 16. But Matthew 25, we read of Jesus's return, 31 to 33, when he separates the sheep and the goats. And that's not something that we should look forward to, because even you and I, even though I I love Jesus with all my heart, I'm going to have to go up to go up to Jesus and he's going to be like, all right, so. Here's your sinfulness. And whether it's a giant TV screen or it's just all the memories flooding back of every last sin I've done, I have to see it. And when I'm brought low to the point of realizing that I am without warrant, that none of my works can warrant me into heaven, that I've never done a single thing that warrants my acceptance. That's when I'm that's when I'm going to say with absolute certainty that. I don't deserve anything. I deserve hell. But Jesus died for me. I once had somebody say, gee, I hope I remember that when I get up to God. But the fact is that if you really love Jesus, you will, you will remember that. Just like if you really love Jesus, you're going to repent of sin. Just like if you really love Jesus, you're going to take up your cross, you're going to deny yourself, and you're going to follow him. Now, Matthew 16, 28, uh, it presents interpretive challenges because you, it, Jesus, Jesus has this vague statement. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The reason it... The, well, all right. So there's four basic views. One of them is heresy. I'll let you know which one is heresy. I'm not going to leave it a mystery. Uh, so either Jesus is referring to the transfiguration, which narrative, in the narrative is literally the next set of verses. So uh, that would be the kingdom coming in glory. Or Jesus is referring to his resurrection. So the kingdom playing out in its plan. Or the, or the other one that's not heresy, Jesus is referring to the day of Pentecost, which is the kingdom coming in power. The, all three of these are valid interpretations of what Jesus is saying. There's people that are standing around him who will not die until they see this or these events. The last one, which is clearly heresy, is that Jesus was mistaken. And the argument for that is, well, he doesn't know the day or hour of his return. So, and that's Mark, uh, Mark 13, 32. But, but no, Jesus is not mistaken. He did not mess up. He did not misspeak. He meant it when he says, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I speak, But I'm, I'm going to propose that, honestly, the best, the best evaluation of which one this is is one of the three or all of the three. Uh, The the concept of kingdom, the kingdom of God in Matthew, is kind of a fluid concept. Sometimes it means one thing, sometimes it means another. Sometimes it means something heavenly. Sometimes it means something earthly. Sometimes it means good works. Sometimes it means repentance. Uh, The kingdom of God is a really fluid concept. So frankly, all three of those are valid. As somebody who loves the the structure of of the Bible, I, I like to say, well, it's clearly the Transfiguration, but frankly, I just say that because I'm I, I, well, because I like being right. but but the but ultimately, it doesn't matter which one it is, as long as you don't think that Jesus was mistaken. Because if Jesus was mistaken here, then maybe he was mistaken about his return. If Jesus was mistaken here, then maybe he was mistaken about what sin is or the Beatitudes. So do not go down that slope. It's a slippery one. So what we need to understand from the very end of chapter 16 is that what Jesus says is true And some of those people that were standing there amongst them got to see Jesus returning in power. They got to see the value of taking up the cross, of denying themselves. So, if you wish to follow Jesus, if you have the will, the desire, the yearning, to follow Jesus, then you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross, recognize that you have to live a daily dying life. And I'm not just talking about dying physically, but I mean dying in your flesh. You have to do battle with your sin. You have to know God deeply by investing yourself in his word. You have to correct yourself when you're wrong about his word. You have to take correction and rebuke from those from those that love you, because honestly, your pride gets in the way. Everybody's does. And you have to remember that you have only this one chance. This one chance to live a life that glorifies God. Martin Luther was a man who knew how important the truth was and how important it was to die for Christ's sake and not live for his own. On April 18th, 1521, so just a few years after his 95 Theses, uh, Martin Luther was invited to attend what, what was known as the Diet of Worms not worms. It's spelled like worms. It's pronounced vorms, the diet of worms. He was, he was invited to come make a defense for his doctrine, which sounded good, right? The church is accepting this. The church is finally maybe going to take, take this doctrine specifically justification by faith alone and scripture being the only source of revelation. What happened, however, when he showed up was he was railroaded by an inquisition of the Roman Catholic Church. The Pope had no intention to reform. Instead, the Pope wanted his power. He wanted to maintain his control and justify the tradition. Luther stood and waited patiently for his turn to speak. As, as the, 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 the court of clowns, as he said in one letter, the, the court of clowns who had already made their decision continued to just beat on him over and over again about how he had to be wrong, quoting tradition predominantly. And then when he's finally given his opportunity to speak and open his mouth, uh, they, all they did was say, plainly, Recant. Are you willing to recant Martin Luther? And here is his response. Obviously not in Latin. Since your most serene majesty and your lordships require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one. And it is this. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures and by clear reason, for I do not trust in the Pope or councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Luther knew that would spell his own death. He was given another opportunity to recant. And he knew that, they would, that he would get killed. And he knew that this would cost him his life. And yet he still stood firm on, on the conviction of the word of God. Ironically, the plot had come out that the Roman Catholic Church was going to assassinate him anyway. And it's ironic because he had hopes, but his his friends figured that's not going to happen. And so so there was a leak in this information and some of his friends found out. And so uh, some of his friends decided to kidnap him out of the Pope's hands. And so as he's being escorted to his own execution, the carriage gets robbed. He gets kidnapped. He tries to fight off his attack hackers, not realizing that they're trying to save him, but he, like me, was a, was a little bit portly and wasn't able to do it. And so he gets whisked away and he spends several years hiding in a, in a parapet, in a, in, in a a big tower of a, of a, of a castle. Martin Luther was doomed either way, but he, he chose to go on the side of what was true and good and righteous. Jesus is going to one day return. He's going to make a judgment of each and every one of you. He's going to include me in that. He's going to do it for us. And those who are in Christ will be vindicated, but not without seeing our own sinfulness in the light of God's holiness. Here on earth, we're supposed to swallow our pride. We're supposed to mortify our sin, which means to kill, to murder. As uh, the, the Puritan pastor John Owen says, be killing sin lest it be killing you. We're supposed to mortify our sin as a response to that inevitable vindication. We, as Christians, do not try and earn our salvation by flagellating ourselves, by harming ourselves, by cutting things off. Instead, we work out of our salvation, knowing that we will be vindicated, and therefore we do not want our sin any longer. That's what it means to take up your cross. Those who desire to follow Christ will end up living... um, living a righteous life. But those who do not desire to end up Christ will live a self-righteous and secretly unholy life. Pray today, saints, that this be none of us, that we would have the boldness to face the persecution that comes uh, from wolves who do not want to live their lives reformed and conformed to the image of Christ. Pray that we would joyfully deny ourselves that we may gain life in Christ. Here may we stand. We cannot do otherwise. God help us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, for each and every one of us, taking up our cross looks different. For each and every one of us, denying ourselves looks different. And God, to try and, uh, try, try and tell everyone in this room or even myself how it looks today is going to be different one week from today. It's going to be different 12 hours from right now. So, Lord, I pray that you would let us take up our cross continually, remembering that you bore the heavy end of it for us. We have a light load to do in order to walk a life or to walk on a path that glorifies you. God, let us hear hear those words of Martin Luther, knowing that here we stand, we can do no other, so that we might see you high and lifted up, glorified as you so deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. When it comes to, I'm loud. When it comes to following Christ, denying yourself is one of the most important things that you can learn how to do. When it comes to following God and being convinced that God is worthy of worship, you will not find anything more sweet to your soul, no matter how much your flesh hates it. Go in peace, saints.